Hi, this is Robbie Dillon, and you're listening to Catholic vs. Other. Tell the listeners, if you would, a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you believe, and why you believe it. Well, my name is Robbie Dillon. I live here in Montreal. I was born here in Montreal. I lived in Montreal all my life. And what I believe is, I believe in God, but I believe in a God that's uh, very much like an idea. I believe in the idea of God for practical, pragmatic reasons, but also for very idealistic reasons. I think my family were, for the most part, Catholic, although there is like a, I'm part native. I have a native card. And, and, and so there is a kind of native sensibility about the universe and so on. But uh, so my family was Catholic and my mother was uh, a pretty devout Catholic. She was an unwed mother. She would, well, she ended up getting married about five days before I was born. But my mother was 17 when I was born. And she married my father. Uh, my, you know, in those days, that was pretty common, though, you know, that for teenagers to get pregnant, that was pretty much the way things were done. People, I mean, maybe not in really good families, but uh, my mother came from a decent amount of money. But anyways, at any rate, my grandfather was, was so Catholic that he still wanted to attend like only the Latin Mass, even after Vatican II, I think it is, right? And uh, so my mother kept going to Mass. My grandfather had thrown her out and my, my, my mother still wanted to go to Mass. And she had a baby though, and so which was me. And so she brought me, and what she would do, she would put me in the uh, foyer, like in the entranceway of the church, you know, where the pamphlets and things are. And she would put me there, just inside the door. She would leave me there, and she would go in and light candles and pray and do whatever it is she needed to do in the church. And uh, at one point, the uh, the priest came and said, uh, Ma'am, is that your baby out in the hallway? And she said, yes, that's my baby. And he said, well, you're going to have to leave. My mother said, well, I came here to church to pray, you know. And he said, well, then you're going to have to put the baby outside. And she said, well, why? He said, well, if the baby cries, it'll disturb the other parishioners. And and my mother said, well, the baby's not crying. And then, and then he said, well, you, you know, you're just going to have to leave or, or put the baby outside. And my mother said, but it's the middle of winter. And uh, the, the priest said, well, it doesn't matter. It'll be fine. You know, I don't know. And my mother said, you know what? I'm done. I'm never coming back to this church. And she left the Catholic church. Now, the interesting thing was we, you know, we got through life. My father didn't stick around. And we ended up going um, and living in a housing project. And it was a very tough little place. And not many of the kids went to church. But my mother said, look, I don't believe in this. I don't have any place for this in my life. But I will not let you grow up not knowing. So you're going to go and you're going to go to church and you're going to go to Sunday school and I'm going to go too. We're all going to go on Sundays. That way, if you choose when you're teenagers or when you're grown up, if you choose, uh, sorry, the cat, there's a cat here and the cat is crawling all over me. So if you're listening and you're having trouble uh, with the way I'm speaking, but I think we've dealt with the cat problem. So anyways, uh, my, my mother wanted us to know what religion was about, to have some experience. She said, well, I'm not going to let you be like these other people in the housing project who just reject it just out of laziness because they don't want to get up on Sunday. So she said, you're going to go, you're going to do this. And then at least when you reject it, you'll know what you're rejecting. How many kids were you? We were three. So we would go and my mother would go to church and the church, it was, it was a Presbyterian church. Knox Crescent in Kensington. Very good church. The, the people were nice. The pastor was Dr. Mackay. And uh, they were very nice to my mother. They could see that she was poor. And so they were always bringing her like clothes and, and things like that. So we were probably the sort of uh, 
token poor people of the church. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so, so then uh, we spent quite a few years going to church and going for donuts after. <laughs> I always remember we got to go for donuts. That was very exciting. So, yeah, no, so, so, so I have that, that background in that my, my grandfather, you know, once or twice took me to Latin Mass, which I didn't understand anything. And, and yeah, we went to this Presbyterian church for a while and, you know, Sunday school and, you know, they give you a, a comic book pamphlet, you know, explaining different things from the uh, parables and, and from the stories of the Bible. Would you pray at meals and before bed and stuff like that? Um, we had at different points, we, we, for instance, we would say like, uh, God is great, God is good, let us thank Him for this food uh, before, like very quickly. Yeah. I knew the Lord's Prayer, obviously. I knew the one... Um, uh, now I lay me down to sleep. Now I lay me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you know all these. Okay. Did you pray that? Uh, yeah. Now I lay me down to sleep. Uh, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I didn't. It's interesting because you know the only time I ever did that was when I was very young and uh, what, like even before I think we joined the Presbyterian Church. So like while my grandmother was kind of babysitting us and. Uh, my grandmother and my mother raised me. So we would do that. And then we had to say, like, God bless mommy and God bless blah, 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 and God bless. And, and we had to sort of do all the, the list of the Did God blessing. That? I mean, when I think back on it now, it seems very nostalgic. Uh, I never haven't really thought about it much. And uh, I, I didn't find it a particular chore. It, you know, it was like many things in life. It was just something you do. You learned that from your grandmother? Primarily? From, my, from my grandmother, for whatever reason. I, I mean, my grandmother had had a very hard life. I mean, she was married to my grandfather, and then he threw, when he threw my mother out, my grandmother left too. But if my grandmother had never worked a day in her life, she was a housewife, and, and she had always lived in a nice house with a, a fairly wealthy husband. And, um, you know, she went from her parents' house into her husband's house. That's how things were done. And so when my grandfather threw my mother out of the house, my grandmother said, well, I'm going too. What was the reason for throwing her out? Oh, well, you know, I, it's a bit of a story, but my, obviously it has to do with my mother getting pregnant when she was 16. Oh, okay. She was wild. She, I, you know, yeah, I suppose so. I guess, she, yeah, I think she might have been a little wild. It's very hard <laughs> to understand if your mother was wild or not wild. Or, you know, I, I think you spend your whole life trying to come to terms with the idea of your parents, not as gods, but as human, because... You know, well, your parents, everybody's parents are, are eternal figures, right? They have always been there until they're not there. Mine are still alive. And, and uh, th there's a sense there that like, well, that is the universe. That is the world. That's something that's always been there. What would be your earliest memory, like at age five, four, three? Oh, no, well, I have a very distinct and, and it's very interesting because I learned how to read when I was three. And when I was six, I was reading at a college level because my mother would sit me on her lap and she would read books to me. And at one point she was reading the, uh, the Dr. Seuss books. And there's a book called Hop on Pop. And it's probably one of the the more simple ones. And it's probably the one maybe many people learn to read with. But I actually remember sitting on the my mother's lap and her reading the book. And, you know, at different points, at some point she was tracing the the words with her fingers. And, and at some point she stopped tracing. And then I just started to understand, like, how the OP and the OP and the OP hop on pop on top of pop hop on top on top of pop and it started to make sense like oh that sound repeats and those letters repeat and i i actually have a concrete memory of when the sound and the, and the symbols came together wow i want to talk a little bit about the sort of the dark 
side, like, was there ever a point where you were an atheist, like a, a militant atheist, hardcore atheist, or anything like that? I think I might have been just a lazy atheist. I don't think there's a lot of hardcore atheists. I think it's a really, it's an easy position to adopt and defend. If you're lazy, if you have lousy arguments, right? Like if you don't want to confront questions that are just unfathomably vast and deep and that will never be answered. If you just want to pretend those questions don't exist, well then, okay, like, yes, be an atheist, but like you really have to pretend that those questions don't matter. Those questions aren't real in any way. And, and like, I, you know, look, in that, they're not much different than uh, very dedicated people of faith who are like, oh, well, it's just God's will. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. look, you, 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 you know, you, it happens on both sides. It's yeah. just lazy thinking. So, you know, what you want is to, is to be like pushing on these questions all the time. And, and yeah, you're never going to answer them. But, you know, I think the, uh, the, the sort of things that come up as a result of just asking those questions uh, can be very, very interesting. Can you talk a little bit about, because I know you're studying philosophy now, right? Yeah. So can you describe just briefly for the listeners why you chose to study philosophy and what you learned and how it's different from what you thought it was going to be and where you're going to go from here, that kind of thing. The honest to God truth is that I had a girlfriend and, and she was maybe, you know, drifting a little bit. She had been out of school for a year or two. And I think she was a bit shy to go to school. And I said, well, I'll, I'll go with you. That girlfriend has graduated now, no longer my girlfriend. But in the course of that, I started accumulating all these credits because I, I discovered that I really liked philosophy. And the interesting thing is that the reasons why I liked it have changed. You know, so at first I liked it just maybe for a uh, chance to argue with the professors, and and then uh, I became a bit involved in the in the social life around philosophy. It's an opportunity. There's a lot of interesting people. You know, the professors and the students alike. You know. People People I wouldn't normally encounter in my day-to-day, -day, you know, and the chance to have all these great discussions with people. And how has it shaped your worldview? What I mean is, did you have a set of assumptions that you were happy with because you didn't question them? And then by studying, you realize, oh, I've got to abandon this, I've got to abandon that. Well, actually, my, my assumptions, the assumptions that were, uh, you know, most uh, importantly disposed of were assumptions about uh, school. Because I had grown up, I mean, nobody in my family had ever been to university, and I had tried to register at university. I mean, it is a bit bizarre because I have this, I'm not bragging or anything, but obviously I have a kind of exceptional uh, ability, like intellectually, uh, you know, not extremely exceptional, not 1% of 1%, but I'm in that top 1%. And, and uh, you know, how did I drop out of high school at 14? Like, how did, you know, why was I not a good student? You know, but it's also, there's a lot of reasons for that. And one of, but one of them is that my family doesn't have that experience at all. So going to school and discovering that, no, I, I mean, if somebody's listening to this and they're wondering like, oh, gee, I don't want to go to school. I'm too old or, well, I'm 56. I'm in school. I'm having a great time. The people have been super nice to me. The teachers have been, uh, you know, incredibly patient with me. I've learned so many things that I, I'm grateful I've read so many books that I probably, you know, would never have read otherwise. And uh, it's just been, it's just been amazing. So that would be the biggest assumption that I overcame by going to school. And, uh, and then, the, I mean, I think the other one is, is, and it probably, it relates to religion in a sense, um, is that uh, we should be very, very suspicious of certainty 
because like all of our knowledge is on a really unstable foundation. It rests on a big abyss, a big chasm of the unknown. And like we can live in it, we can work with it. You know, I know there's a table here. I know there's a, that you're here and we're talking and uh, you know, there's a cat running around the apartment. And of course, I work in, in that paradigm, but if I ever think about it, all of this is just happening inside my head. I'm 100% certain that one plus one equals two. Are you also certain of that? Yeah, well, okay, yes. Well, I, yes, I have, but all you've just done is made a bunch of sounds with your mouth. One <laughs> plus one. But when, uh, when, it comes to, you know. when it comes to tax time, it's not just a bunch of sounds coming out of your mouth. That, okay, that's a very, very good example. Like one plus one equals two. You have to pay your taxes. You did your calculations. This is the taxes you have to pay. And if you don't pay these taxes, you go to jail. Okay, that's all very certain. That all makes sense. And if you stop there, you will have a certain kind of life. But you see what the philosopher does is goes, well, why do you pay taxes? And why do you go to jail if you don't pay taxes? Who decided that they have the right to go into your pocket and take your taxes if you didn't agree to it? What if you don't want to pay your taxes, right? Like ultimately arrest on some guy with a gun. Yeah, might makes right. Do you remember who coined that? Was that a sophist? Oh, you don't gee. remember? I, yeah, no. Might makes right. I know the expression. It's actually, there's a great scene. Um, you'd love this movie. Uh, and I've forgotten the title of it, but Robert De Niro's in it. And he plays a priest. And he's a sort of missionary. Oh. And uh, it's an old movie, but they have to climb up this waterfall. And Jeremy Irons. Jeremy Irons and Robert De Niro. And they're both priests. And but Robert De Niro wants to defend these Indians who live in the jungle and he's going to give them guns so they can fight off like the conquistadors. And uh, Jeremy Irons also loves the Indians. He wants to protect them, too, but he doesn't want to turn them into like killers and warriors. And uh, Jeremy Irons says, if might makes right, then there is no place for love in this world. There are a lot of people that deny absolute objective reality, absolute objective morality, mm. and absolute objective truth. I think it's a scourge on our society. What do you think? There may be very good reasons to have morality, even if they're, they're not objective reasons. There can be very pragmatic reasons, right? Like, isn't life better when we don't all try to kill each other and rob each other's stuff? And, you know, like... No one wants to get raped. No one wants right. to get murdered. Right. So... You're saying that you sympathize with that sort of pragmatic moral relativism, whereas I'm saying it's a disaster. You're saying, well, it works because we all want the same sorts of things. Well, again, it just depends how you interpret it, right? Like, you know, Kant was very much like what we call deontology. So there's very much like lines about what is right, what is wrong. And so one for Kant is uh, you should never tell a lie. He's got very, very good rational arguments. And, and lying is at the basis of so many other sins, right? But, you know, belong in lying and lying somehow is part of them. So you should never lie. Okay, so there's a killer. He's chasing people. Someone runs into your house and says, hide me, hide me. So you hide them underneath the couch. And then the killer comes to the door and says, hey, that guy I'm looking for, I want to kill him. Is he in there? Now, what's the right thing to do? Lying is wrong. You can read St. Augustine actually as a, as a, a section in one of his works where he describes nine different types of lies. So there's like lies of commission, Lies of omission, lies that are benevolent lies where you yeah. tell someone something to save their feelings. There yeah. are lies, oh yeah, there are, you, know, you can lie to someone in order to get them to do something. And the worst one is equivocation. 
saying what the other person wants to hear, but in your mind, you've like switched up the definition. Ah. Like I'll give you your money when the sun rises, but in my head, I'm thinking the sun doesn't rise, the earth rotates. Mm. You know what I mean? So it's like, uh, you get to hear what you want to hear and I get to keep my money that I owe you. Ah. <laughs> okay, yeah, oh, equivocation. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So I'd like to change gears a little bit and get onto more religion. Yeah. So why are you not more religious? You know, to be fair, I've, I've gone to church services and things, and, and I, I like some of the things that happened there. I, I mean, I was going to a Lutheran church. I went to a Catholic church. I was experimenting. At one point, I was wondering, like, oh, maybe this is a part of my life that I need to uh, get involved in. So yeah, maybe I'm a good person for this podcast. I wasn't sure, but because I actually do sort of flitter around. Even just the other day, I saw something. There's a black church down the street, and I was thinking, well, I wonder if they would let me go to <laughs> church there. It would probably be a lot of fun. It would probably yeah. be interesting. Oh, yeah, they would like um, Obviously, I believe in something uh, supernatural, something beyond. And I try to live in accordance with Descartes. So Descartes, now a lot of people think that Descartes, Descartes doubted everything and blah, blah, blah. And they think that some of the things he put in about God, he just kind of put them in there just because he didn't want to get in trouble with the church because he was aware of Galileo and he didn't want to end up like Galileo. And then other people will say that, well, he threw God in there just because he didn't have a good answer. But uh, Descartes says, well, we know that there's some idea of perfection. And yet there's nothing about us and about our world that is perfect. So how could that exist? And so in Descartes, therefore, there's a God. So when I think about God and when I think about religion as a motivating force in my life, what I'm thinking of is like there is something in me that is not in me. It is beyond me. It is much, much better than I can ever be. It is, it is the idea of perfection. And I judge myself against that perfection. You know, when I'm looking for like the, the answers to the big questions, I have to always measure it against the infinite, against the eternal, against the perfect. And so to me, that's God. So are you drawn to the big three of monotheism? Judaism, Christianity, and Islam? Are you particularly drawn to those three as a group or to any one of them individually? These, these big three, as you call them, to me, they're just kind of social movements that are trying to interpret this idea of perfection, eternity, infinity. So we create gods and rituals and as a way to try and confront those questions. They're tools. So let's say I die. And there's God. And God's like, oh, you didn't, uh, you didn't take the Son of God here as your Savior and so on. I say, well, I'm sorry. You're God. You didn't make a very good case for it. You have to think of it in terms of courtship. When you meet a woman mm. on a first date, she doesn't just take off her pants and spread her legs, right? <laughs> yes, she does. All the time. <laughs> I'm a very charming man. I'm a very handsome man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, carry on. It's a courtship. It's a seduction. It's a seduction. And ah. there's just enough skin shown to get you excited to, if you love God, you're going mm. to get excited and you're going to take the next move and the next move. After you've been dating for a while, you're going to be engaged and then finally get married. That's what heaven is. Heaven mm. is the marriage, okay? And then you mm. consummate that intimacy. That's reserved for the marriage, right? So it's a, it's a love affair, and on this planet, we're in a fallen state, which means mixed in with this courtship is error, 
weakness, dark, deception, disappointment, di- all the dark stuff, you know, war, greed, disease, right. mental illness, you know, you name it. So it's a bit of a messy affair, but the courtship continues. And that's how you have to look at it. And St. Augustine famously said that only those who love God and God alone get to see God naked. It's a love story. And we, we, we are given just enough clues to find God if we love God. And if there was too much evidence, then everyone would find God. And if there wasn't enough evidence, then no one would find God. So there's just that right balance. Yeah, he's the trickster god. No, um, no, there's no trick. He's a trickster god. He's like, no. here I am. No, I'm not. No, yes. Oh, maybe I am. Oh, wait, I'm going to do this other trick so that you think maybe there was I don't a, exist. There was a famous Greek pre-Socratic who said that nature loves to hide. We can't grasp it, but we can confront infinity. And a lot of the ancient philosophers talked about God. They may not have had a sophisticated understanding of what a relationship with God could be and salvation and that sort of thing. But certainly the perfections were being hammered out by the so-called pagan philosophers. But I I don't think perfection is hammered out. I think perfection is a thing that exists. Like when you're talking about God, you're talking about something that is eternal, infinite, perfect. So we're all trying to find like a path towards that, right? So we're all trying to put it into a form. And and so, yes, like you say, I think uh, primitive people will go, it's a giant woman with blonde hair, her hair is the sun, and, you yeah. know, but you're just trying to put it into some form you can understand. But this goes back to postmodernism. What do we do? Like, we take these things and we try to put them into uh, language. What is language? Language is symbols and sounds. But, you know, Jesus famously talked in parable a lot, and this is language at work. Well, that's it. But Jesus, Poetry Jesus is talking about a, a, a rich, man, a rich man going through the eye of a needle, and now people, what do they do? They say, oh, no, the eye of the needle. He doesn't mean a literal needle. They didn't even have needles back then. What he means is, uh, you know, he means there was a gate uh, that went into Jerusalem that was called the eye of the needle and and it was a fairly narrow gate so if you had like a skinny camel and not too much stuff you could get through <laughs> but if you if you had bags and bags you couldn't get through i mean you know this kind of thing it's like uh all kinds of things have been lost in translation and you know there's like you know some people will say no no jesus if you go back to the original aramaic and it says like no jesus was walking by the water and somebody turned you know somebody who didn't understand their aramaic but jesus was walking on the water and now we have a problem i firmly believe he walked on the water okay well you're you know and 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 uh, no but these are discussions right where like the by the water on the water eh, but the one about the virgin birth is very interesting because there are virgin births like going back through all the mythologies like long before Jesus. Yeah. But there's also the problem that the word for virgin in the original text and the word for a young unmarried girl are the same word. Yeah. Do you believe Mary was a virgin? I, I don't even know if any of these people existed at all. <laughs> okay. Oh, you don't believe even in a historical Jesus? It seems that there's a very strong um, case for a person who had certain characteristics, had a following. And, and uh, in Judaism, there's a problem at that time because there are so many messianic cults. So there's, there's basically guys popping up on every corner going, I'm the Messiah. No, I'm the Messiah. You know, and even here today in Montreal, we still have like Moshiach. The Lubavitchers were, uh, were yeah. a thing. And now yeah. that guy's dead. 
you know so so anyways but if you can imagine back then my understanding is that there's all sorts of these guys you know and probably why you asked about the big three religions i i would probably if i ended up going to church it'd probably be a christian church i've 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 asked people to bring me to mosques uh, you know but you can't actually ask someone because then they're obligated to bring you but i've asked people yeah if you ask a muslim i would like to go to the mosque he's obligated to bring you but so i have muslim friends who go uh, this is how you do it, but don't ask me because I'm not bringing you, you know, like, like, cause they don't want to, why don't they want to bring you? Well, they, it's a pain in the ass because <laughs> okay. the, like the Muslims that I know are not super devout. Okay. Right. Okay. okay. So they're like, okay. yeah, look, if you, you know, that's how I know about this rule. <laughs> okay. So I know a couple of Muslims and, uh, but yeah, so, um, uh, you know, look, my, my upbringing, my culture is probably much closer to the Christian thing. And uh, and there's probably some questions to ask there. But I do like the Christian ideals. And, you know, it's interesting because you have the Gnostic Gospels. You have all these things that are going on. And, and most of the Bible is written, what, 100 years after, or at least 30 years after Jesus' death. But the central message, the idea... See, and I think this is, again, this is what's interesting about religion because it's always trying to touch on things that are eternal and universal. And when we talk about things that are universal, what we're really talking about is that all human beings have them in common. It doesn't mean it's universal, universal. <laughs> so all human beings believe that one plus one equals two. But there may be beings that for which one plus one doesn't equal two. But that's that's a, another conversation. I disagree, but anyway. Well, you're allowed to disagree. <laughs> I mean, you know, but, but uh, we are all somehow connected. And I think that's very present in Christianity in a way that's not present in other religions the other religions seem to me to be more tribal i'll be honest like you know the, the judaism is very much a tribal religion look where you're born into it we don't even want you to join right and islam from what i see of it and from what i understand of it is like oh there's the muslims and there's the infidels and like christianity seems to be much more open to the idea that look we're all connected we're all connected, living and dead and in faraway countries and all human beings come under the same umbrella. Even if someone is not a Christian, even if someone's an atheist, like kind of like what you're doing here, there's not like, oh, they must be converted or destroyed <laughs> or no, Christianity is quite willing to accept like, oh, you just don't quite see it yet. We don't hate you. We feel kind of sorry for you. When I was an atheist and I converted to God the Father, it happened in a heartbeat while I was reading Discourse on Method by Rene Descartes, mm. actually. Laying in bed reading this, and mm. boom, I realized I'm not God, God is God. Because I was a solipsist, I believed that I was God. But the reason I ask about monotheism is because if there are two gods, then either one, St. Augustine famously said this, either one will lack some of the perfections that the other god has, in which case he's not God, or they will have an identical set of infinite perfections. In that case, they're not two, but they're one. So there's only one God. Let's say you take a Greek or a Roman pantheon of gods. Well, they're obviously superior to us. They're immortal. Yeah. They're eternal. Well, right? They're not perfect. Yeah, it's funny because if you read The City of God, in that book, St. Augustine famously confronts the pagan gods and he says, look, I'm perfectly happy to say that Zeus is God and that Vulcan is God and that uh, all these other gods right. are God. 
provided that we take the fertility of this god and the warlike strength of that god and we take the wisdom of this god, Hermes or whatever it is, and all of those perfections, I'm happy to accept all of these gods, but they are one. And Hinduism, if you speak to a Hindu, they will admit, most of them will admit that there is only one God, but these are aspects of God. So I want to talk about something that's a little bit controversial, that's sin. Do you acknowledge that you are a sinner? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I would necessarily use those, uh, those terms. I process good and bad in many different ways. I probably should have some kind of idea of sin. If you take my idea of how I am religious, if I'm religious, if you even want to accept that, yeah, yeah. then 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 um, I would say that my my idea of sin then is well, whenever I'm moving away from that perfection or from that objective, right? Whenever I'm moving in the wrong direction, that would be sin. Okay, so people will say, oh, these are we're not living in religious times. We're not living in times that are influenced by religion, right? And yet. I can say, look, Montreal is a very Catholic city. Even though all the churches are closing down, nobody goes to Mass. There was a time when people would get up at 5 a.m. to go to Mass before they went to work. And it was, it was pretty much, you know, a lot of people don't realize, they look at Montreal and they see there were all these 24-hour restaurants. And they assume, oh, that's the bar flies out at 4 a.m. after the bars close. And they're not wrong, certainly the bar flies. But the bar flies were not the business. And that's why all the, there's just as many people going to bars now, but there's no more 24-hour restaurants. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? So think about it. And the reason that all those 24-hour restaurants did business, why they were able to stay in business, was not to service the bar flies, you know, and the, and the you know, people like that. Um, that's only a small part of their business. The bulk of their business was people who came and had breakfast at 5 a.m. so that they could get to 7 a.m. mass before they went to work at 9 a.m. You know, why does Montreal, so Montreal has all these, uh, well, we've always had more liberal drinking laws and and drinking hours than Toronto. Toronto actually still has uh, what are called dry zones. You know, the Protestant church would say, no, this is a dry area. This is a temperate zone. No one can have a liquor permit. No one can consume liquor in this area. That goes back to, I don't know, hundreds of years anyways. Um, And you can actually still find them on the map. I think they still exist. Now, that's what's interesting. I think the, the confession is a very healthy thing practically, and it has very interesting effects in society. So you'll see, like when you go to Irish place, you know, and people get really drunk and they get in a fight and they have sex with their sister or whatever. And, and then they, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they go to church and they confess and everything's wiped clean and you try your best to be good. But then, you know, next Saturday you screw up again. And, uh, and, but you go to confessional and you get another chance. Whereas like, you know, the Protestant sort of mentality is like, oh no, you're screwed for life. Oh, you, you did this? No, you, you will always have this mark upon you. Like they're, they're much less forgiving. And you see that. You see that in, in so many different policies. Like, a, you know, for instance, like a, the penal system. It's a very Protestant system in the United States. It's a very much more Protestant than Catholic country. And so, you, you, you know, there's life imprisonment. Imprisonment without the possibility of parole. You are condemned for life. Whereas Canada, which was originally a French place before the English even showed up, and so even in the Protestant places, that French 
code, very much a Catholic mentality, still exists. Isn't it interesting that in Canada, you could have like the most horrendous people, Clifford Olson, Paul Bernardo, these are serial killers. These people are, like, let's face it, they're never getting out of jail. But on paper, it's written in the, the constitution of, of the, the, the penitentiary system of Canada that no inmate is beyond the possibility of rehabilitation. And that's the difference between the Catholic and the Protestant mentality, I believe, the well, historic influence of it. The, the very notion of being penitent yeah. in the penitentiary, I mean, that's the whole point, right? Mm. And uh, I agree that the confessional is, is a gift to humanity. It's amazing. I recommend it for everyone. Like, you know, I was a thief uh, for quite a while in my life, and... and uh, I was heavily influenced in that direction by my environment, by the people in my life, by, you know, my, my father and my uncles and things. Now, it seems it's not a really fair commandment, thou shalt not steal, because rich people have a lot less motive and temptation to steal than poor people. So if thou shalt not steal is going to be like a law from God, a universal law, it should protect and sort of restrict everybody equally, right? Like someone who's rich, who steals, he should go to special hell <laughs> because like you already started up on the front foot. God's put a law in place, not only to give him an unfair advantage in obeying that commandment, but he's also protecting him, the stuff that he already gave him. You know, you think at least God would say, Okay, I'm going to put some people here with some stuff. I'm going to put some people here without stuff. But it's fair game. If you can get his stuff, that's fair. Yeah. And like why, if stealing is wrong, then it should be equally wrong for everybody. Yeah, every, it's a case-by-case -case basis and, and God understands the, the circumstances and the extenuating Really? Because it doesn't say, yeah. like, you know, it yeah. doesn't say the Ten Suggestions. <laughs> it says the Ten Commandments. It doesn't say, thou shalt not steal unless maybe, in the, you know, under these circumstances. But, you know, that's law. Well, the point of talking about a God who is eternal and perfect and infinite is that the law should also be eternal and perfect and infinite. You shouldn't be able to equivocate. There's no equivocation in the Catholic Church and the nuanced interpretation of the Ten Commandments, but there is a loving mercy. It's just, but it's merciful. And this is, this is the way God is. He's perfectly just and he's perfectly merciful. How do those work together? We can't comprehend it, but we can apprehend his perfect justice and perfect mercy in the church. And I think the confessional is a good example of that. There's, well, if there's he has, a, if he has a perfect mercy, then he has to understand when, he, you know, when I get up there and I go, well, oh, yeah. hey, listen. <laughs> Listen, we have to have a talk, you know. Uh, at the end of my interviews, I always ask my guests to speak directly to the audience and just sort of wrap up the show. But just as a ray of hope, something from your perspective that you learned from your life experience, what would you say to anyone that's out there that might be listening? Well, my, my life has been at times uh, very challenging, I think. Uh, I think most people would agree with that. And uh, it hasn't been easy. There was a lot of different kinds of abuse when I was young. And I think that stays with you all your life. I mean, I'm also a, a sort of byproduct of uh, native residential schools. My grandmother's family was broken apart. And they were sent to schools all over the country where they were raised not by their family, not by anybody who cared about them, but by, uh, well, actually by nuns. Uh, so uh, strange. Strangely, strangely, I have a, a not a terrible relationship with the Catholic Church, but you know the Catholic Church was implicit in the, in the whole residential schools thing. Now that I didn't even think of that while we were talking, but uh, 
And as a result of that, though, you know, my grandmother was a, a good woman, but she also had no sense of how to give love or show love. And she didn't show love to her children really well. And my father especially didn't turn out very good as a, as a parent. He's very abusive. So I can probably understand what it is to feel really low at times, to feel really unloved, to feel lonely, to feel like not worthy of being in the world, to feel like you're less than other people. I mean, uh, self-esteem is a huge issue, is a huge issue for my father, and it's been an issue for me, something I've struggled with all my life. And uh, I have at times felt very very down, very suicidal to the point where, you know, I, when I was younger, I had quite a few guns and I would just tell people like, come and get the guns and take them away because I think I might harm myself. And so I've been there. I've been there again and again. And all I would say to people is that it can always get a little better. And, and the thing is, when you're really low, it seems so far from the light. You seem so far away that... Uh, you know, you want something big to happen. You want to win the lottery or you want like somebody to come and apologize to you. Somebody who's not going to apologize to you in a hundred years or, or you just want some kind of big gesture. And, and the truth is how I've gotten myself out of these holes is just to take some tiny little action, even the the smallest thing you can think of, it could be just you're lying in bed. You just can't face the world. You just don't want to get out of bed. It's okay get out of bed. You know, if you, if you can't get out of bed, just sit up on the edge of the bed. Like, and I promise you, you're going to feel a tiny little bit better. But also when you see that you've taken action and you've made yourself feel a little better, that's the most hopeful thing because then you're like, well, what else could I do? Can I walk over to the bathroom and wash my face? Okay. And so you walk over to the bathroom and you wash your face and you know what? You'll feel a little better. I promise you. And, and you build these things up one little step at a time. And because I think the really the big inclination when you're when you're really sad and really lonely and down low, like you want something really amazing to happen, like a romantic comedy or you want to win the lottery, like I said, or, you, you, you know, if you're feeling sick, you want you don't want to get better a little bit. You want to get a lot better very fast. It's very frustrating. I've been injured. I haven't been able to walk for like a couple of weeks and I've spent like a year limping around and it's it's not pleasant. Not too long ago, you know, I was having suicidal thoughts and because uh, that's part of the problem of being a philosopher, especially existentialist philosopher, is it's very hard to uh, find a meaning for life. So I just decided, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go in my spoon and fork drawer. I said, well, I'm going to wipe off all these spoons and forks and I'm going to put the spoons in a spoon slot and I'm going to put the forks in the fork slot. And, and, you know, that was really all I wanted to do that day. That was my big project for the day because I've been through this before. But when I was finished, I looked at the drawer and I felt just a little bit better. So I thought, well, let me look in the next drawer. And the next drawer is full of menus from the takeout restaurant. And I said, you know, I got all these disgusting menus, all this disgusting food that I'm going to order I'm going to eat it to try and make myself feel better, but then I'm going to feel like crap because I ate all this crappy takeout food. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take all these menus. Most of them are out of date anyways. I'm going to throw them all in the garbage. And then, you know, and then I'm going to rearrange that drawer. It's full of menus and maybe throw out a few things that don't belong in there. And now I have two drawers that are clean. And, you know, over the next couple of weeks... I rearranged my whole house and cleaned it all up and, and suddenly with each, each little thing that I did, it made me feel a little bit better and it also gave me a little bit of motivation to go on because I saw the results. So yeah, I would say to anyone 
you know, you're feeling pretty hopeless, just think what one little thing could I do, one little thing to make myself feel a little better. Rearrange your sock drawer, fold some t-shirts, you know, put some clothes in the laundry. And uh, you'd be surprised how quickly that snowballs and that steamrolls and things just get better and better. If you like your worldview, if you think it's swell, if you've got some questions, ask me and I'll tell. All you've got to do is ask. All you've got to do is be.